Death and taxes are said to be life's only two certainties. As organizations continue their digital transformation journey, you can also add the certainty of an expanding cyber threat landscape and the unrelenting barrage of attacks that come with it. Peter Firstbrook, Gartner Research Vice President, says, The pandemic accelerated the hybrid work and the shift to the cloud, challenging CISOs to secure an increasingly distributed enterprise, all while dealing with a shortage of skilled security staff. In today's podcast for Future CISO, we are joined by Mark Duplessy, Managing Director and Security Lead for Southeast Asia with Accenture, for his take on the top challenges that CISOs and security professionals will face in 2022 and beyond. Mark, welcome to Podchats for Future CISO. Thank you very much, Alan. Nice to meet you. Uh, looking back 2020 and 2021, what has been the biggest challenge for the CISO and security team and how have they responded to this challenge? I think there's a number of things and one is hard to, to identify just one issue this year because it's been difficult. But let me touch on the one that is probably the closest to my heart. That's around business advisory. A CISA role is an extremely difficult role. I'll be honest, it's a terrible job because you're meant to be a technical guru who can take all the cyber stuff in the world given to you by experts, understand that all the way through from cloud through to old infrastructure, if you're running OT environments, for example, and then take that, consolidate that into a way that people who've got no idea about cyber need to understand. And the difficulties, CISOs traditionally didn't have to do that. They would go to the CIO who would then go talk on behalf of the IT to, to the board or the C-suite. But we've seen this shift where CEOs are directly asking the presence of a CISO to be in the room. And this is a great shift. It's been happening for a while. The thing that we've seen most difficult for CISOs is to move away from just looking after cyber threats, IT stuff, business concerns around risk, and then move into being an advisor to the C-suite. So the operational and business side of the impacts of those risks. And that's probably the thing that we've seen that shift happen. It is happening. To answer your second part of your question, it's happening and it's happening purely because it, uh, many CISOs are being asked to do this and they are responding to that challenge. Whereas if you go back pre-COVID or you go back five years even, the CISO was still an IT function person who reported to the CIO traditionally. Are CISOs in Asia able to adapt to talking in business terms to the CEO and the board? I'll give both. Yes and no. Yes, where the organization is mature. I've got a number of clients who are very mature across Southeast Asia, not just within Singapore. And um, those that are mature organizations where they have now, in many cases, experienced attacks, the CISOs have responded well. There are still those where the CISO does report directly to the CIO and from there it's up to the C-suite and then the message gets diluted. But the more mature organizations, and you'll hear me use this phrase over and over again, the cyber champions who are top quadrant for us, they are the ones who are making that leap. And it's normally mature, large organizations, typically financial services or critical infrastructure, government definitely in Singapore. What are the key security trends and challenges that organizations are currently facing this year, 2022, and probably even beyond? I'll give three technical answers, if you want to call it that way, around issues, and then two around personnel and people. 
Um, so there'll be five answers in particular. So uh, as per your previous podcast, ransomware attacks are still profitable. Ransomware is the killer. It's the number one thing that we are seeing. And it's getting worse. We noticed that there's 107% year-on-year increase from last year in ransomware attacks. And it's more, there's little bits that are, that are interesting around this, which is not just about ransomware itself. We see groups getting together to create forums, so that a new ramp forum, so that they can actually collaborate amongst ransomware groups or attackers. We also see that cloud, the increase in cloud, whether people use cloud, especially if people are just dumping data on the cloud, thinking it's more secure, uh, that increases obviously the footprint that the attackers can use, the initial access brokers can use to bring in ransomware as a service. And here's the interesting touch for me. I've sat through a number of these incidents, ransomware incidents with, with clients this year, talking to the board, talking to the C-suite to guide them through the incident. Somebody else is doing the ransomware, normally the recovery of their Active Directory. We've got another group that's maybe legal. You've got comms, you have negotiators, all of them working together. But the situation that we found is, let's say after eight to 10 days, the threat actor, you don't hear anything. They don't hear anything from the company because the company is still deciding, can we get backups? Do we pay? Do we not pay? After that time, there's a press and that press normally comes from media. And it's the ransomware threat actor going, we've got 35 gigs of your data on Twitter. They let them know straight away, or they go through journalists who then say, mm, we heard a rumor that you got hacked in this 35 gigs of data. Scoop and scandal is the term. So that pressure then doesn't help the situation. So ransomware remains at the forefront. And the final bit, which is a, a link to what I've just spoken about, is that we're beginning to see a trend where you know how the ransomware attack works. Some Somebody breaks in, then they bring in the ransomware as a service firm to do the ransomware bit, and then they disappear. And then typically the ransom happens. Everything's frozen. The data gets taken out before that, but they hold on to some data. We're seeing no ransom. We're seeing initial access, data exfiltration, and then the threat of exploitation. We're going to put this up on the internet. So it's not even ransom. You don't have to pay me my ransom because I know you'll never pay. So we've seen this, this increase. So it's the first thing is ransomware attacks. The second point is supply chains. So this trend, this difficulty and challenge that companies have is about supply chains. And honestly, it's been the same for 20 years. We run a forum every quarter for APAC CISOs. And we discussed supply chain, especially around Log4j, solar winds, and the disruption, as you've also reported in a podcast. This one's not going to be solved quickly. And one of the CISOs was like, guys, we've been talking about this my entire career, and we still can't do anything about it. I've seen clients put in clauses. If you cause a breach, I'm going to come after you. But that's only for certain contracts, not for the entire raft of contract, trying to find visibility of what a supplier has, or even what you as an organization have. These difficulties are, are always there. So supply chain will continue to hurt us until my view, and also the, the way Accenture thinks is we need to help industry change. So the industry will drive us as suppliers to change. So I'll give you a, an example of this, which we discussed in the forum. I used to work for for an oil and gas major before Accenture. Part of that was how do we bring the IT environment to be secure? Because it's traditionally very legacy. We haven't got visibility, all the stuff that supply chain has. And we got together, created a forum with the five biggest suppliers to this organization, uh, OT providers, and said, we're going to create a standard for you. And if you don't abide by the standard, you know, we won't do business with you anymore. We'll wait for your legacy stuff to go, but we won't do business. They could because they were so large. But that then became a international standard and is part of the IEC 624. 443 suite, which is the OT security suite. So industry can drive changes 
suppliers, inside of suppliers, and across industry. So clients can do that. And that's something to think about how we're going to change supply chain. Third one, cloud centricity promotes new attack vectors. This one is an interesting one for me too, because we are pushing the adoption of cloud. And if I had to go back two years, I would have so many conversations with clients where they would say, I don't trust the cloud. Can I go to the cloud? Is my data going to be secure? Is Microsoft going to keep it? Can I audit them? Can I audit AWS as examples? Now it's the other way around. I've got clients going, put my data on the cloud. I'm sure it's secure. And that vector, the new attack vector, it opens up ransomware, access points, etc. And even there's a rise now of tool sets, which are specifically targeting cloud virtual infrastructure, like Kubernetes, etc. Dockers. The group we've seen is called Team TNT. We've seen them target cloud virtual infrastructure in particular. So those are three technical challenges. And now I'll come to my favorite non-technical challenge, talent. The cyber talent is extremely skinny. Even those that are fat are skinny because they can work 24 by 7. We have a really hard time maintaining cyber people within Southeast Asia, building and maintaining. Singapore is best. And if I look to Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, for Accenture, that's where we operate. It's difficult to find cyber talent. We may, many times we've got to import it. Like myself, I've been here 14 years. It's a rare thing to hold on to. And not just that, the market is hot. So the salaries are above what they should be in my view. So CISOs are taking a budget that they got given, even if you've got 10 million bucks to to transform, holding on to people, hiring people, attracting them and keeping them is difficult at the moment. The industry rates are are ridiculous for attrition. And then the final one, which is cybersecurity awareness and culture. I think this one is quite obvious, but we as Accenture spend a fortune educating our own people because we hold client data. We make training mandatory, completing of training as part of our, what we do around our own performance. So if you don't complete it, you you get less of a bonus. Before COVID, I spent three years with a Malaysian client, a very large oil and gas company, and they spent three years educating their staff heavily on awareness. Every week, there'd be two releases about cyber awareness and culture. And you'll also see this trend recently with all the smishing SMS phishing that has happened. You'll see that companies are now more comfortable saying, dear Mr. Client, please be aware of cyber issues, phishing, false calls, all of this kind of spoofing that is happening. You'll see that that will continue, that trend will continue over the next year. You'll see companies starting to address that quite heavily. What about the implications of these same five trends on the CISO role and how does that affect a company's own security strategy and posture? So what we're seeing is Southeast Asia is one of the largest, fastest growing digital economies. Uh, There's a unicorn on every corner. And with digitization and this kind of super app, you are, of course, opening yourself up to more attacks. We find that there's two types of companies that are addressing these challenges within Southeast Asia and the implications of those. The first one is your traditional mature cyber champion company who are making progressive investments in security and have continued to do that. They will make sure that they are doing all the right things around hygiene, etc. And then the other side is the one I'm seeing a lot now is the cyber risk taker. And these are companies who are startups or have, I want to go quick to market, and they're making conscious decisions to actually accept a higher level of risk so that they can drive the business to get to like an IPO or SPAC or some kind of way of going public. And we see that in companies, they normally, for the first couple of years, they go like mad. They make conscious decisions around security risk. And then after a while, they catch up. Like, okay, we need to slow 
slowdown. We've got an app that works. We've got enough profit. We've got enough um, subscribers. So we're going to now really focus on security. Not that they didn't have it, but now they want to move into a cyber champion. They want to make that leap. So that's the, the kind of trend that we're seeing. Those companies are looking at, with those factors that I said, they're looking normally at automation. They're looking at service providers because they'll be a small lean, lean CISO team. There'll be three, four people maybe in that team. And they will look to service providers because even though they can afford talent, that talent comes in as a into a place that's innovative, not into a traditional operations role. So they look for service providers to help them transform and then do managed services. And that's probably a good choice uh, in Southeast Asia. If you're a mature organization, let's say I'm, I'm a bank, I can afford to pay for a raft of cyber people because it's part of what I've been doing for 30 years. As a startup, that's not your way of going. If you look back, what is the composition of a CISO team? At the core, if I were to build a CISO team and say I'm, I'm, I'm a medium-sized organization, budget is there but not so big, uh, but I could afford to build a CISO team, what would be the foundation or the basic level at which I could arguably say we are comfortable enough with our security posture given that this is the size of the team that we have? Traditionally, if you start from, I've got one person in the team, that one person in the CISO team traditionally have been a risk person, a cyber risk person, normally to handle audits, keep an eye on whether or not applications are secure or that infrastructure doing the right thing, patching. So it'll be governance and then risk. Here's what you should do. How are you doing against it? And the rest, all of the like, oh, I'm going to do architectural reviews or I'm going to security monitoring, leave it to others, normally IT. So if you only had a small budget, that's what you would go for. Keep control over what you can because the bits that are important are risk. You can manage risk through others if you have an organization around you. You can push the risk to business units and say, you have to meet these standards that's been signed off at the board, so please go do this. Then if you had more, the one thing I'd start adding to that is business interconnects. So you have a cyber person in charge, let's say you've got four lines of business. You put four people to interconnect with them so you know where they're going and what their business drives are because you as a CISO won't have time to, to stay close to them. The good CISOs that I've worked with do that extremely well. They'll go see their business counterparts, the VP of some division. They'll understand their security issues and they'll bring somebody and say, this person will be your interconnect. So you're represented. That gets fed back. So all the work that the one risk person or governance person was doing is now done by four people. And it's still at the moment, mostly compliance because the team is not that big. Then I would start adding more around architectural reviews and standards. So uh, architectural division, if you want to put it that way. I would add strategy around cyber direction. You need somebody who thinks strategically outside the box to drive where you're going and then your business interconnects with them. And the final, I suppose, if we're just talking about this now, leaving the the true technical stuff out, so identity, blah, 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 uh, operations, is monitoring. If you're going to monitor as I'm building a SOC or I'm using a, a third party, you'll need somebody to help you in an incident. You will need an incident manager and responder because there's certain activities. You know, as Accenture, I don't want to receive those activities. I don't want to do them on your behalf. They are yours. So I take an incident, I hand it over to you, you make a decision, I'm there to support you, but you lead as the incident handler. In some cases, that is the CISO as well. So if you had a small team, that's kind of where I'd keep it. And if I added people because of ransomware, because of the direction we're going, I would add in threat hunters. I would add in more high-end cyber people so that you can constantly check if you've been attacked or if there's somebody lurking inside of your environment because the operational side, I'd just hand to somebody else. A level one sock guy, just give it to them.
If you could name uh, two or three best practices uh, or must-haves that constitute a sound cybersecurity strategy, what would that be for this year? Given that we're still remote work, may not change at all. Uh, hybrid work will probably be uh, a norm later this year, M more people doing that one. So what would be those best practices? I've got a few for you and you can just stop me when you've had enough. Again, this is one of my favorite topics. What are best practices for this year? The first one, resiliency. I know it's a topic that everyone's talking about, but I'll just try and make it as simple as possible. Accept and prepare for breaches. You're going to get breached. Everyone's got breached. We've got breached. Everyone I know, even Mandiant, who are fantastic, got breached. So prepare for it. And how do you, more importantly, have you got backups and how do you communicate? Again, as I was talking, I had, you know, I've sat a lot with, with CISOs and CIOs and CEOs. And the question is, how do I inform the CEO? And CEOs are interesting because they are so used to risk. They make a decision every day about business risk, steer, direction, fraud, you know, financial, regulatory stuff. They understand risk. But when it comes to cyber, this is not where they are comfortable. Unless they've got that muscle memory of having multiple incidents happen, they don't know where to go. And CISOs, you ask the first question, CISOs are coming through and saying, hey, I can advise you. I'll be your advisor for this. But in many cases, they don't know them as well as they know the CIO. So it still has that issue. So my advice, understand how you're going to communicate when you get hit. Prepare for this. So backups is an obvious one. So you keep resilience. How are you going to operate tomorrow if you get hit today? And then how are you going to communicate to all your stakeholders if you get hit today? Practice, 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 practice that till everyone is comfortable with it. And I'll add on just a little devil's advocate here. I was with an organization who had operations in 12 countries. They get hit on a Friday. They didn't tell the workforce and the email and teams got taken out. No email, no teams. How do you inform a workforce on Monday morning in 12 countries that they're going to log on, they're going to see nothing? Um, and that needs to be prepared for. So that's a good real life example of point number one, which is build resiliency, practice, 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 have your backups ready. I've said the second thing, best practice for me is to engage service providers. So come to Accenture, go to my competitors, my peers, just make sure you have people who can help monitor. So particularly around XDR or MXDR, so managed extended detection and response. Go do managed services if you don't have a great SOC. Just, it, it's okay, pay the money. At the same time, take an incident response retainer because all IR firms are flat at the moment. The world is such a crazy place that I've had clients come to me recently saying, I need help of clients. I need help. We got hit and we've got no bandwidth. And this is not just us. It's all of our peers as well, because of the way the world is. So engage service providers. Third one, zero trust. It's a nice concept, but we've actually done this in a number of clients now. And it's more of a mind change. It's a culture change and a mindset change to go from the old days, which was perimeterization, even an extended perimeter to the cloud still felt like part of my thing that I was controlling. The reality is you've got no control. Trust no one. Verify everything. And if you make that mindset change, it actually frees up the organization to do so many fantastic, innovative things that you know you're secure because I know who is logging on and authorizing every transaction at a starting point, if you want to make it simple. So zero trust. And then my final one is hygiene. I can't stress this enough. Cyber hygiene. And when you ask the composition of a small team, a small to medium CISO team, the governance of cyber hygiene is phenomenally important. That it tends to to get lost in the noise of we being attacked or the noise, not attacked, but you know, constantly every day there's, there's more and more things happening. We're seeing 10,000 attempts 
on us every single day, for example. The fact that you need to patch, you must make sure your EDR signatures are updated, you monitor, you look at phishing campaigns, you do proper secure application development, um, and you look after your passwords and accounts. All of that hygiene needs to continue because the entry point for ransomware is vulnerabilities. The initial access brokers are the ones that are selling VPN credentials because everyone's using a VPN. They're selling that. So patch, make sure that you're patched and that your passwords are solid. That hygiene, I again, I can't stress it enough. It's oldie, but it's a goodie. Continues to be relevant. Because you mentioned about how difficult it is to find the right staff, right? Not just from the CISO level itself, but everything downwards, I guess. The right types of people that should form part of the team. Can in this environment where we are in, it's tough to hire, tough to keep. What's a better option for me? Do I just uh, train in-house and and go for there? Do I force everybody to go for as many certification courses as they could? ISACA, IS2, whoever can provide all all the courses and I'll just pay through the notes to get them but at least get them pushed through and keep those things hopefully have them sign three-year contracts so they can't leave (laughs) you bond them in forever That's actually very accurate. So the two things that can help. So there's workforce, those are returning to the workforce, mid-40s, run about their PMATCH program that we are part of with IMDA. And we're taking, outside of Accenture, we're taking people who were doing a different job. They've had children, that job's disappeared. They now want to do cyber work. We train and bring them in. Also within Accenture, working with IMDA to take people who are maybe an SAP person or a marketing person in some cases and make them cyber people. If they have an interest in cybersecurity and fast, they're Singaporean, important because it's linked to IMDA, then we will train them, put them on a six-month training course. IMDA will pay for their salaries for them to reskill as cyber people. So that's still underway. Accenture itself, we have a kickstart training for those who are not funded by Singapore government. We got kickstart cyber training so that we throw, yeah, as you say, everyone in. Could be anyone who has an interest in cyber, preferably has some kind of technology background. Doesn't have to be, but preferably. Then we get them up to speed quickly. Internal and outside at a certain age, reskilling. Then a young age, went to see uh, Tomasek Polytechnic. I got a fantastic program around cyber and forensics. We'll take on poly students, no issue. Hopefully give them a path to becoming degreed if they want, so that we stay with them. As you say, they stay loyal to the firm then because we're doing the right thing with them. The best cyber leaders are those who practice servant leadership. Cyber people need to have a mission. And if your leader has the mission and then serves the team so they can hold that mission as well, you'll get a lot of loyalty. The difficulty in cyber is it's long hours and it's always the one that people consider to be the blocker. So traditionally has not been a very happy place for people who are doing hard cyber work. So it's keeping people is around giving them a mission and being a servant to to people. And again, the best CISOs do that. They raise their team up is what I've seen. And the other two, as as you said, let's find people who are not cyber people, retrain them, accelerate them, and they will tend to stay because they've been in the firm a long time already. And polytech students look outside the box and start them at, at a junior age. It's very good training in Singapore. What is the one advice for the CISO in 2022 to help guide him or her in tackling the role of the CISO? There's three things. We call it the engaged CEO. How do you engage and make sure that the CEO is supporting and, and engaged in cyber? They're committed to cyber. And it's just, it's three quick things. Capture the strategic picture of cybersecurity in your business. In other words, you need to tell them, I can only look at 70% of these machines. These, The other 30% are worth X amount of uh, revenue to us. And if they disappear, X, Y, Z is going to happen if they're unprotected. And the likely impact is going to be blah, blah, blah. So that's a language a CEO understands. So capture the strategic picture. 
architecture of cybersecurity in the business. The second one is speak their language. Speak the language of the board and the CEO and communicate in business. It's similar to the first one, but it's slightly different. The business relevant language, especially if you've got auditors coming in, because often you can use the audit report as a way to go, here's the impacts that could possibly happen. I need some funding out of this and we need to manage our risks better. Significant brand damage, uncertainty around customer data, all those kind of terms, which a board or CEO would understand because they manage risk, not, oh, I've got unpatched systems and I've had 10,000 attempts at hacking. Like, okay, so what does that mean to me? And then the third thing I touched on it already, muscle memory, the CEO and the C-suite, take them on a journey. So they used to cyber events, help them build the cyber muscle memory. So they know when an incident happens, they know that they can respond. Mark, thank you for joining us on Podchats for Future CISO. Thank you very much, Alan. Thank you for your time. I had a great time talking to you about this. Thank you for the questions. (music) 